The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the new and final episode of the Window on the World press review podcast. Today is Friday, 27th of January, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the state of the economy, the course of the war in Ukraine, and the climate crisis and renewable energy. Let's get started right away with the first series of editorials. The first topic of the day is the state of the global economy, which is going through a crisis related to the sharp rise of the cost of living. In this regard, the World Economic Forum meeting, attended by political leaders and economists from around the world, ended last week in Davos, Switzerland. Let's start with a topic that has been gaining traction in the public debate on economics, wealth redistribution. We'll let Guido Alfani, an economist at the Bucconi University, explain what wealth redistribution is about. On the pages of the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, According to a report by the NGO Oxfam, by 2020 to 2021, the richest 1% of the world's population has earned 63% of the new wealth created. In Italy alone, the richest 1% of the population holds 23.3% of the country's total wealth, a trend that has been growing over the past 20 years. In 2002, in fact, the share of wealth held by the richest 1% was 11%, less than half of current levels. Looking at past centuries, however, it appears that the trend was diametrically opposed. This, the professor maintains, was not because the wealthy were more exposed to the direct risks of crises, but because they were regularly called upon to contribute to a greater degree than others when it came to financing anti-crisis policies. Thus, the suspicion arises that recent crises have been paid for more by the community at large rather than by the wealthiest people, a community less and less able to absorb economic shocks, creating further social inequalities. By failing in their function of getting taxed in times of crisis, however, there is the risk of running into increased social tensions in the context of an increasingly unequal an economically static society. The only way to solve or at least mitigate the problem would be to rethink tax systems in the direction of greater progressivity, which by no means translated into more taxes for everyone, Alfani concludes. Instead, another trend witnessed in recent years is the increase in protectionist policies. Protectionist economic policies that the West will regret, argues Janan Ganesh, columnist for Britain's Financial Times. Germany's dependence on Russian gas, Ganesh explains, has had two main negative consequences. The first, increasing the Kremlin's influence over Europe. The second, lending credibility to protectionist policies. Look what happens, they say, when strategic industries are open to trade. In the case of the first consequence, the problem is easily solved, resorting to alternative energy sources. In the second case, however, the increased influence of protectionist economists will be more difficult to counter. With this in mind, US President Joe Biden has passed the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the goals of which is to fight, economically, China. But the new law will probably end up hurting European companies as well. 
In doing so, however, the US is implicitly admitting that it has conceded to the worldview of authoritarian regimes, which posits that the interests of individual countries must prevail over those of the international community. This protectionist turn is a profound intellectual conquest by populists. The United States won the Cold War, the columnist concludes, in part by building an empire of trade that wavering third nations could join to their profit. In a protectionist world, what could be an equivalent strategy? Instead, the editorial staff of the Spanish newspaper El País takes us back to the Davos meeting, mentioned at the beginning. Although the summit's conclusions were less negative than expected, in that the global economy avoided the sharp downturn that many had predicted a few months ago, nevertheless, the challenges ahead should not be underestimated. Among these continues to be inflation. The inflationary trend has been reversed, but it will not be easy to return to the pre-crisis situation. Moreover, while growth figures are better than expected, the poorer parts of the population in several countries have seen their purchasing power sharply reduced. At the geopolitical level, there is also uncertainty because of protectionist pushes. Reducing the West's dependence on China may be a correct goal, but it could weigh on the efficiency of our economies, which are closely linked to one another and to the Asian giant. In this context, policymakers should implement measures to ensure the protection of the most disadvantaged. But in many cases, due to the growth of public debt, there is little room for maneuver. At the international level, the Spanish journalists conclude, developed countries must realize that raising interest rates has the effect of increasing the unsustainability of developing countries' debt, increasing the interest burden and shrinking their spending capacity. The second part of today's episode focuses instead on the war in Ukraine. Beginning on the 24th of February 2022, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has recently entered its 11th month. A recent development in the conflict came following last week's summit of Kiev supporting countries in Rammstein, Germany. At the summit's conclusion, additional military aid was promised for Ukraine. Since the beginning of the conflict, nearly 8 million refugees have fled Ukraine to Europe according to data from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, while 6.5 million people are still internally displaced within the Eastern European country. The war in Ukraine is being closely followed from across the ocean as well. Let's start with the opinion of the American editorial staff of the New York Times, that the war has entered a new, more deadly and fateful phase. And the one man who can stop it, Vladimir Putin has shown no signs that he will do so. Although fighting is still going, the war is nonetheless experiencing a stalemate. Apparently, the journalists say both sides are preparing for a new series of offensives to be launched in late winter or spring. To this very end, Kiev allied countries are stepping up their military aid. If the guns keep firing, diplomacy, on the other hand, continues to remain silent. Kiev and its allies have different views as to what should be considered an acceptable victory. But as long as the Kremlin does not sit at the negotiating table, this remains irrelevant. For the US editors to push Putin to mediate, in conclusion, the Russian people must be convinced of the futility of this conflict. In contrast, anthropologist Viktor Staukowski in the pages of the French Le Monde gives a broad interpretation of the motives behind the conflict. 
The outcome of this war will show what kind of political regime is able to emerge victorious from this military, logistical and economic confrontation, the anthropologist argues. Indeed, the autocracy of Putin's regime and its supporters face off against the democratic model of the countries supporting Kiev. A Russian victory would be a huge boost to Putin's imperialist project, which the Kremlin has never hidden. Indeed, Putin's ultimate goal would be to make Europe politically divided, militarily weak and economically dependent on its natural resources. Similarly, a victory for the democratic field would demonstrate to people living in a non-democratic regime that it is possible to overthrow them. If so, this could also spell the end of the last dictatorships in Europe, such as Belarus. It is to stifle this hope that Vladimir Putin has attacked Ukraine. He wants to show his own people that dictatorships are always more powerful than democracies. Europe, should it emerge victorious and thus stronger and more united, could one day instead hope to have its eastern part not a defeated Russia, but a democratic, free and prosperous Russia. Instead, the editorial by Belgian Bernard Adam, published in Le Soir, brings us back to the issue of the supply of armaments to Ukraine. Indeed, news broke these days that the German government has decided to supply 14 Leopard tanks to Kiev. Right now, the Ukrainian government is in a stronger position than it was a few months ago. This should be the opportunity to take advantage of, in order to find a diplomatic solution to the conflict. Indeed, past conflicts, recent and otherwise, taught us that focusing only on a military solution is often counterproductive. Shouldn't the two goals, Adam argues, be to stop the fighting to preserve civilian populations and to force the withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine? and at the same time start negotiations in an attempt to find a political solution to settle the differences between Russians and Ukrainians. The delivery of tanks, therefore, the columnist concludes, should be part of a deterrent strategy, show determination on the one hand and to force Putin to stop the war and join the negotiating table on the other. Let's change the subject completely for this last section and talk about climate change an ecological transition. The first editorial on climate and energy transition comes from the French newspaper Les Echos. Columnist Rachel Delacour explains how the current ongoing decarbonization of production chains is comparable to the digital revolution of two decades ago. This is an inevitable transformation for any company seeking to survive and thrive in a future shaped by climate issues where progress is increasingly monitored by regulators and NGOs. Of particular importance in this regard are data on the company's carbon emissions, attesting to their sustainability or not. Not only emissions, however, the new directives will also oblige more than 50,000 European companies to report extra financial information related to so-called ESG criteria on their environmental and social impact every year. Finally, in the years to come, increasing emphasis will be placed on the regeneration of biodiversity, another area which companies will have to adapt. To protect their financial health, their supply chain and avoid accusations of greenwashing, companies will face an important challenge transforming to last. From the private sector, we turn to the public sector. Christian Stocker, a journalist for Germany's Der Spiegel, explains why Europe should follow the example of the United States in terms of investing in renewable energy. 
the Inflation Reduction Act, enacted last year by Washington, among other things, authorized the allocation of nearly 400 billion US dollars, including investments and tax breaks, for the development of renewable energies, as also pointed out by a representative of the Texas Wind Energy Initiative, clean energy has been declared a liberal technology. The expression used stands for the fact that even in Texas, a U.S. state that historically bases much of its economy on oil extraction, more and more landowners are converting their properties to wind farms. For 120 years, Texas ranchers have been able to get rich by finding oil. If it can be done with wind, why not do it? Not just wind, green hydrogen production is also enjoying heavy investments. The advantages of hydrogen are the ease and low cost of production, as well as the simplicity of transportation. These policies seem to convince even the most staunch Republican voters, as they have changed the narrative about renewable energy, turning it into a profitable investment. And in Europe, despite the war in Ukraine, the price of CO2 still remains too low to convince investors, as is happening in the US. According to a prediction by Stalker, the EU will soon follow the American example when it comes to subsidies for renewables. Such a competition between the US and EU on the issue, the columnist concludes, could finally accomplish what is absolutely necessary. Large sums of money flow into the inevitable restructuring of our energy supply. We'll now go to Belgium for the last article of the day. In the pages of La Libre, socialist Charles Delhez tells us about his fears for the year 2030. According to the estimates of economist Bruno Colmont, we are in the last years of appeasement before major upheavals occur. The last windows of opportunity may be closing soon. Floods, heat waves, hurricanes, extreme events, all linked to climate change. Meanwhile, the gap between what we are doing and what we should be doing grows even wider. Added to this is the crisis of the West's values. Yesterday, it was the master of the world, but now it no longer dictates the timing for progress. Its values no longer pass. And they are challenged by autocratic models, which often deny the effect of human activities on the climate. But what is holding back the change we would really need? Fear of change itself, first and foremost, but also that this will be accompanied by the loss of past achievements. In 2030, the world will be different, and what we still do today will no longer be doable. However, it is clear that we cannot afford excesses on a planet that has its limits. Perhaps we should do as the cathedral builders concludes Delhez. Cathedral builders knew they would never see the finished building, but they had a project in mind, an ideal in their hearts. We've now reached the end of this final installment of the Window on the World Press Review podcast. We'll now say goodbye and thank you for following us so far. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza. And at the microphone, it's me, Gail Rago. Thanks so much. Take care and goodbye. <laughs>